Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you missed the Exiles in Babylon conference, which uh, I know a lot of you uh, did miss it, we do have the videos for sale now on the Theology in the Raw website. And we did hire a whole film crew to get different angles, and they did some editing and really polished them up. So it's uh, we tried to we wanted to produce some high quality uh, uh, videos that uh, capture the conference. So theologinraw.com to check that out. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theologinraw. All the info is in. In the show notes. My two guests today are Sam and Julie. Uh, Sam just finished his PhD from Wheaton College, and the topic of his dissertation was uh, was on the topic of intersex. And Julie um, has an intersex condition, so I wanted to get a sort of academic pastor scholar to be on the show to talk about intersex, and also a friend of mine who has an intersex condition, so we can get kind of the, the, the experience, the theologian, and have a nice dialogue about something that's really important. I know some of you don't, don't are listening, and you're like, I don't even know what intersex is. So you will find out in this uh, podcast. And um, yeah, I thought it was uh, just a really engaging conversation, and I'm glad we had the the, t- the kind of combo. Of, of the academic voice and one uh, and a person with the experience. So uh, please welcome to the show for the first time, Sam and Julie. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with my friends, uh, Julie and Sam. And um, all y'all listening are not going to know this, but <laughs> we actually recorded an entire episode over a month ago and uh, when I went back and looked at the file the audio was all screwed up and so we had to scrap that video and um, so Julie and Sam were kind enough to donate yet another hour of the time for this really important conversation so thanks so much Julie and Sam for coming back on Theology in Iran. Why don't we start uh, Julie uh, share a bit about yourself or you know we're talking about intersex and probably a decent number of people, maybe to your surprise, to both of your surprises, because I know this is obviously front and center for, for both of your work uh, and lives. Um, some people may not even know what that term is. They might be like, I don't even know what that means. So um, yeah, Julie, we'll start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and then I'll toss it back over to Sam. All right. Yeah, I'm Julie. I am in my 30s. I'm married with two adopted kids and live in the Midwest. And I was raised pretty normally but um, was diagnosed with an intersex condition when I was 19. Um, I have Swire syndrome, which is where I have XY chromosomes, so I have male chromosomes, and all-female anatomy. And that um, was discovered just after I didn't go through puberty. Um, I never had a period, never really developed, and um, lots of testing and poking and prodding to figure out until an endocrinologist was finally like, let's just check your chromosomes. And there they found the issue. So my um, reproductive organs, things like that, weren't quite normal, quite um, developed correctly. Um, There's a lot of hormonal issues that go along with being intersex. But yeah, diagnosed at 19, and now I'm in my 30s. So do do you, I'm I'm curious, I mean, I'll probably ask this throughout, like, I know language can be really sensitive. Some people, like, if I say intersex condition, is that your preferred term? Or because some people would say it's not a condition, I am intersex, it's more of like, kind of who I am, not something that happened to me or whatever. Um, Do you have a preference just so I can use the right language? I don't have a preference. I'm not going to be offended um, by either of those terms, but I don't mind calling it a condition. Um, I do 
have to take medication to function normally hormonally and I've had to have um, surgery. Um, okay. So I feel like it is a condition on my end. I'm not yeah. quite fully functioning. Um, okay. Yeah. I've got a, a bunch of other questions. Um, yeah. That, that's, I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, going to the doctor and receiving something like that and just having, I'm sure you have a, a thousand questions, but I, I want to come back to that. Sam, tell us a bit about you and your work and how you got interested in, in this topic. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm also in the Midwest, uh, in the States, um, but, but from England, um, ordained in the Church of England, it, it work, doing normal kind of pastoral ministry stuff um, and, and just getting lots of questions, um, particularly around questions of identity and issues of sexuality and was encouraged to come and do some some further study um so i've, I've just sort of finished up um doing some further study here in the, in um the states and I'm really focusing in on this question of trying to develop a theological account of how, how do we think well biblically and theologically about intersex embodiment uh, compassionately and uh that's been a real privilege um to think about that and so i've been thinking a little bit the last a uh, few years and have found the structure of creation, redemption, uh, creation for redemption, new creation, uh, really helpful. And so I've been here a few years, um, uh, married, three children under three, um, about to return to England. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what can you tell us like precisely what your dissertation topic was? Was it basically a, a biblical theology of intersex like that broadly speaking, or did you dive into more of a narrow a more narrow question within the intersex conversation or yeah it, it was actually quite quite broad the question i was thinking about was was whether um intersex embodiment um busts uh, busts the binary um often there's a sort of male female binary is set up mm-hmm. and binaries are very unpopular today um and so thinking does the existence of intersex embodiment as julius shared uh genotypically xy phenotypically female um, does that kind of blow open um, how we think about, or how like historic tradition we've thought about male, female, and trying to get back into what uh, the scriptures say about that, what, what their contribution might be for how we think well about our sexed embodiment, mm-hmm. male, female, and intersexed, and found that we learn, we, we can figure out kind of what we are uh, mm-hmm. when we learn whose we are and where we fit within God's story. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why those big kind of waypoints of creation, uh, fall, redemption, consummation, new creation are, are really important. So it's quite broad and sort mm-hmm. of zooms in um, every now and again to sort of specific yeah. debates, some kind of arguments, uh, but really trying to sort of develop how, just how do we love our brothers and sisters well um, who are intersex? How as a church can we can we yeah. grow and be, and what's the newness that Jesus has I, I am curious while, I mean, while we're on this, like if somebody, and I hear, I come across this a lot. I'm sure you, you do too. It's why you framed the question the way you did. But like pe- when people say, we know that sex is not binary, male and female are not the only options because of intersex people. Um, how do you respond to that? Like, is that, do you find that to be a theologically uh, and, or even scientifically valid way of framing it? Or how, how would you respond to that, that um, suggestion, argument, perspective. Yeah, I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, I want to acknowledge some of the motivations behind that question. Mm-hmm. We want to see what's before us um, and and look at uh, 
empirical data in all uh, our um, created diversity. And yet, just because we are presented with you know, even our own sort of unambiguous maleness and femaleness, um, we want to ask the question to think theologically is, is the data in front of us um, the way that uh, God intended everything to be? Mm -hmm. um, and so really the work I've been doing is looking to pause and not just sort of assume just because something's in front of us, that must be definitely the way God's intended everything, mm -hmm. whether male, female, intersex, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And hence the contribution of asking where, where are we? we? We live in a world that is scarred by sin. Death causes all our bodies to fall apart and our, our minds not to read creation rightly. It doesn't mean that all creation is bad. We want to be careful and not sort of completely flip the other way. But, but nonetheless, ask the question, you know, what do the scriptures say about how to read our sexed bodies well now in a world that is still good, but a world that is, that is scarred and a world that is being made right mm -hmm. uh, by the coming of Jesus uh, and, and will be fully restored and glorified when he returns. Yeah. So I want to kind of acknowledge, yes, we want to take serious what's in front of us. Yeah. But read it through um, theological glasses, mm -hmm. um, biblical theological lens. I guess my, I, I, aside from like the the fall kind of question or whatever, I, I'm more interested in like the does the existence of intersex people. Thank you, Julie, for being here. Um, show that sex is not binary; that male and female aren't the only two options. Aside, aside from like the, how we even think through like the creation fall kind of paradigm, I'm thinking more like on a scientific level because I'll, I'll see that argument made a lot and it's interesting because a lot of intersex people that i read or talk to sometimes don't really aren't too thrilled about that argument. like most people that i know and i would love to hear from julie because i know you obviously interact with a lot more intersex people than i have most would identify as either male or female um not like a third or fourth or other sex in between male and female um but i, I still people say that you know we know like gender is not binary because there's you know, what is, you know, gender can be, I mean, lots of the things, but I, even people are saying sex is not binary. But yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that some of that kind of definitional distinction could, could be quite slippery, but, but it's important. The conversation we're having now is about sexed embodiments. It's about, again, this may be a false distinction. We could spend another <laughs> podcast talking about um, language, but we're, we're thinking about hardware. Uh, as opposed to the software of gender and, yeah. and how they match on is another conversation. But so, so on, on the one hand, with the evidence kind of, you know, talk about kind of scientific evidence, but the, the empirical data in front of us would say, yes, it is not as simple as saying male, female, mm -hmm. um, that life is diverse and, and it's like gloriously diverse and confusingly complex and like diverse. So in that sense, at the kind of most empirical level, the observable binary, uh, yes, is disrupted. Mm -hmm. But the question I was thinking, just because empirical data disrupts the binary, does that necessarily mean that it's theologically disrupted? Mm -hmm. um, is that God's intent for a, that sex is a spectrum upon which you have one, two, three, many, many different forms of sex embodiment? So mm -hmm. there's an important distinction there between, like, I want to like recognize, yeah, empirically, the binary is disrupted. This is why we're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. But does it mean that uh, that does not necessarily mean uh, that we need to disregard or discard a traditional understanding of a biblical theological male-female binary? Yeah. 
like I've often said, there's lots of diversity within male and female sex embodiment, but there's no other sex category in addition to male and female. Most people within the beautiful diversity of male, they're male and, and female, female. And some people live, live you know, in, in an overlap where they might have a blend of male and female, but there is no sex category for humanity. And in addition to male and female, like those are the two categories, even if there are some blending of, of those two categories in some people's existence for, for whatever reason, leaving aside the kind of theological, is that, is that a fair way to describe it in, in your mind? And I'm, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends how you define the category. Yeah. What are the nest? What what are the um, <laughs> necessary and sufficient conditions right. for yeah. male female? Um, if if you include kind of a particular function, and let's call it procreative function, mm-hmm. then yeah, you'd want to kind of then then things may appear a bit more binary, but then it raises a whole another set of questions about mm-hmm. uh, infertility. Um, so so I think even I I would affirm what you're what you're saying, but a lot of it comes down to how you yeah. define the category. Okay. All right, we we got to jump back to Julie because here's two oh, guys, <laughs> two guys talking Sorry, about Julie. <laughs> the optics of this could could look really poor. Um, uh, Julie, um, thank you for listening in, and I, we've had conversations that I you're. I love that you obviously have the experience, but you're also well studied and have been forced to think through this. I, I'm curious, like your when you found when you went to the doctor you know and found out that you had a y chromosome like what what do you remember i know it was a while ago but i mean do you, like what was going on through your mind how did you react to that did you did that raise like what kind of questions did that raise like what did that do to you in that in that moment i think isn't the first stage of greek denial one of those <laughs> i think i was in denial for a little bit just kind of shoved it aside mm-hmm. And knew that, I mean, I um, I love the Lord, I'm a Christian, and I think that had to come first, even at 19 years old, that my life can still be good. I can still go into education, which I did. I can still travel. I can still do all the things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't really feel like at that point, I didn't do a deep dive into intersex issues mm-hmm. and that came only in the last few years. Um, I was at an adoptive mom's retreat and with a really close friend that didn't know about my condition. And she goes, there's just something different about you. There's something about your story. You're not sharing. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. And I said, well, so I told her and she's like, that's it. That right there is a huge part of your identity. And so then I, and your faith and your story. And so then I started delving in um, and found um, many intersex people online that I've interacted with. And I was also at the age two where my health was becoming an issue, just thinking through the next, you know, 30. And when you turn 35, things change. Um, Mm -hmm. What does, you know, all those things mean for me physically? I didn't feel like I had a doctor that was really in the know. So that's kind of my story of how I started dealing with intersex issues and then getting to know many intersex friends. I think we need to realize the diversity of, of intersex. Mm-hmm. You could meet 20 intersex people and we all have different physical issues and all have different identity issues. Um, I agree completely with what Sam has said and put out. And and I'm so grateful that he's doing that, that it is our identity first has to come from the Lord. 
and then anything that physically has come my way um, is, is earthly. It's mm-hmm. not eternal. It's not. Um, I don't see that story of of all different genders and of intersex. I don't see that in scripture. Mm-hmm. So I am. Um, I've always identified as female. I was raised female. That's never really been a question in my mm-hmm. mind. Never had so. any gender identity issues as a kid I or anything. Not. I did not. No, I've always been very girly. I loved all the girly things, not sporty or athletic or I never grew hair in weird places. I never like my body's very female. Like if you didn't um, go to the doctor, well, except for the, the, the delayed puberty thing, right? Other than that, there would be no reason. Like you never would have really known unless you went to the doctor. And oh, got nobody ever knew. Right. No, it's it's a very hidden physical thing. There are intersex friends that you can tell right at birth that something's askew right. and something's not quite right. So we all have different stories. Um, Whenever I, I don't talk about it a lot, but when I do talk about intersex in front of people, I, I do make a passing comment sometimes like, you know, some of you might have an intersex condition and not even know it, you know, and I, people kind of like, what, <laughs> like, what does that mean? You know, but that's. You're, I mean, there several people I know that, that they found out later in life and it wasn't, it was through going and getting tested or something. I mean, yeah, with some people, if they're born with an anatomical, mm-hmm. like blend of female male anatomy, then obviously mm-hmm. it's clear from the beginning, but for others that it's chromosomal, it's, it's, it's different. Um, I'm, I'm curious how, so Swire syndrome, how common is it? Do you know, do you know the stats on that or Sam, do you know? I don't the know the stats I have, uh, I'm trying to think. I know one person in the States that has Swire syndrome very similar to mine. Okay. Yeah. Um, other than that, well, all my understanding is we all have different variations and yeah. physical. I thought it was one in 6,000 for some reason comes to my mind. Is that 80? One in 80,000. Oh, one in 80,000. Oh, wow. One in 80,000. Yeah. Maybe I was thinking of um, what's the one that's really common? Um, common Complete within the androgen sensitivity. Um, no, I'm thinking of. Um, the one that affects mainly males. I'm blanking on it. Hyperspadia. No. <laughs> Hyperspadia. I mean, a lot of a lot of it, Preston, comes down to how you, um, again, what what counts, what what you get right. you put in. Like as Julie said, there's such a diversity. If you include things like my Turner syndrome, that perhaps sort of um, affect mostly females, yeah. or hyperspadia that affect mostly males, then the stats would be something like you know 1.7, two percent of people. Um, which is the same percentage as, you know, in, certainly in the states of people who have red hair. I mean, that's often the the, um, the statement yeah. put out. You know, it's just as likely to have red hair as to be intersex. It's more common than um, Down syndrome in the US, which I think is like 1.4%. And yet the vast majority of those conditions like Turner syndrome and hyperspadia are disorders of sex development, but they don't disrupt the individual, you know, illicit Turner syndrome is, is XX, like both genotypically and phenotypically female, um, but there's um, some disorder of development. Whereas somebody, um, you know, if you then, so, so then if you say, okay, well, how do, you, how do you define stuff? How do you define the category? If, as Julie said, you know, that there's, there's a kind of some ambiguity between actual sex embodiment as the baby comes out and you're like, you know, just you know, no idea, um, right. but also where there's a disconnect, a mismatch between um, one's genotypical uh, kind of chromosomal and then kind of on the outside phenotypical. And that, and, and that statistic would then be far smaller. You're talking like right. 0.0125 or something. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. Of, I, I have to. There, there's one that's the, I first. I, I always mention it off the top of my head, and for some reason I can't think of the name of it. It's driving me crazy. Um, it's not. It's not Turner syndrome, but it's similar to that. Only it affects mainly biological males, um, and it's really typically can be the 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 the, the symptoms can be, you know, moderate to mild. Sometimes so mild, it's like you're you bald a little bit more. So you know, it's like um, it's not like there's there's like zero confusion of whether this person is actually male you know um whereas some others yeah there's a significant blend um of the two there was um so yeah you, you mentioned the 1.7 percent and correct I, I would love to here's because you've done so much more research on this Sam. so i want to just make sure i'm getting this right like it was uh who, who was a scholar um who came up with the 1.7 percent it was that uh evolutionary biologist feminist biologist um and foster yes and foster sterling came up with 1.7%. Um, and I believe she cast that net really anything that could possibly be under the DSD disorder of sex development was in there. And it, that 1.7% gave the impression that 1.7% of humans have a complete blend of male and female chromosomes anatomy. But then Leonard Sachs wrote kind of a critique of that saying most of the conditions that make up that percentage are very mild to unnoticeable to where I think he said 99% of the 1% um, would be clearly identified and, and identify as male or, or female. It really is like 1% within the 1.7% that would have a, a pretty significant blend of male and female. Is, is that, I'm sure you're familiar with all that literature. Yeah, yeah, Am yeah. I representing yeah. that right? And do you agree with Leonard Sachs on that based on your research? Or And I don't want to get too hung up on the percentages. I think some people just focus on the percentages for some argument. I don't, I don't like that. Um, but just to get people... Yeah, kind of, Leonard Sachs comes up with, um, uh, was it 0.018%. Um, but, but I mean, you're totally right. Like from my perspective, the, 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 the work I've been doing, even if there was one person ever um, theologically, the question would still be worth asking because right. that person is made in the image of God and that person, um, and so it's a theological question. It's, um, uh, it's important to think about uh, for the sake of that, that person and the goodness of what it means to be human. So I am I, not an expert at all when it comes to uh-huh. statistics because that, that hasn't really driven my, um, yeah. my question. Okay. Uh, Kleinfelters is the one I was trying to think of, which it, it makes up, I think the, don't quote me on It's something like 80 plus percent of intersex conditions would be, I think under the Kleinfelters kind of, um, which can be, sometimes it can be a little more severe, but in terms of I understand it's, it's can be unnoticeable almost in, in some people, but um, yeah, the percentages become part of a, I don't know, like, fodder for an argument for on either side like some people say oh it's so rare like who cares and then other people are like no it's actually more common and they, they it just becomes this like almost like a child caught in a divorce like how high are the percentages like what are we doing here you know like like you said one person had an intersex condition that would be enough to care about it um yeah Ju- julie you said you um you've gotten to know quite a few intersex people and have been part of what like on, like are there online communities where people kind of talk and what um can you give us a little insight on what what are the questions people are asking what are those conversations like what 
and, and I don't, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the intersex community, but is that even like a helpful friend, like the intersex community? Is there such thing as the intersex community? You know, sometimes social media has really helped the intersex community, um, community connect. Um, I think a lot of the questions that I see come up are medical questions. Okay. Does anybody know a good doctor in the Northwest or something like that? Or, um, I feel like they, doctors don't really quite know what to do with us sometimes since things are very complicated and each intersex person presents very differently that I think they want advocacy in the medical community, somebody to be educated. Um, And they also wonder too about the surgeries that many of us have been through. Um, Some of them have been through surgeries at a very young age. Mm-hmm. and maybe before the age of consent. And there's a lot of debate on whether that should have happen or not happen right. um, from a medical standpoint, which are all valid questions, very good things. My story, I didn't have to go through that because I was diagnosed as an adult. Um, but there are questions on what surgeries are needed, Um a lot of the medical data points towards cancer forming and a lot of like our, they said I had some streak like tubes and streak like gonads um, and cancerous tissues could develop. So mm-hmm. when I had my surgery, they took them out and they were okay. positive for precancerous cells. So um, I guess so, for my yeah. is So is that pretty common? People with an intersex condition are, are at higher risk of cancer? Is that pretty from what i've heard yeah they can be um just because the cells are different and the the organs aren't getting the hormones that they usually would get since our bodies produce hormones differently that can cause a lot of of issues so okay okay and based on all that and go ahead no no you go ahead you i was just gonna say based on all of that i see it as a as a condition as something that's Mm -hmm. not quite healthy and normal and because um, yeah. yeah just to frame the question I guess this is more of a theological question like are people I'll just say because you've, you've been saying conditions so I'll say condition um, people with an intersex condition did they represent um, just part of the diversity of creation or is it something that's been um, yeah part I, I know we always throw the fall language around but is it part of the fall, like, was it there in Genesis one and two, or, or was it part of Genesis three? Will it be redeemed and changed in the future? Or will people with an intersex condition still have that same condition in the resurrected uh, state? Um, and I'm hearing you say, correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, that given the um, health risks that have to be addressed, you, it seems like you don't see at least your condition is, um, as part of just simply diversity in creation, but actually part of, part of the fall. Is that help? Is it, can I say that? Is that? Yeah, that's all correct. I do. I, I believe in the fall. I believe in the entirety of scripture. And I often think of the story of Job when Job came, you know, when Satan came to God and said, can, you know, mm-hmm. and I messed with Job and God said, yeah, but he's going to trust me. He won't, you know, he will, I will reign in his life. And I feel like there must have been a time, maybe I'm speaking 
when Satan comes to God, can I mess with gender? Go ahead, but I'm still going to be sovereign and I'm Mm. still going to reign. And I feel like um, I can see my condition and then I can see all of God's faithfulness through it with my marriage and my adoptions and Mm. um, just how it shaped my life. I can see the benefits that come through going through something very hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, any thoughts on that? Because I know you've wrestled a lot with the theology. Is that, are you resonating with Yeah, that? I mean, just to kind of second what Judy said, and, and something Judy's spoken of in the past, in 1 Corinthians 4, of being a responsible steward with what God's given us, it, it, including our sex embodiment, hmm. um, of having a life ordered towards um, life forever with God. And Judy's spoken beautifully, written beautifully about that, um, Métis from 1 Corinthians 4. I mean, the... the the question of like creational diversity um, is, is is a really it's, it's a live one, um, and yeah. there's a kind of like there's something called the, the hybrid arguments. You know, in Genesis one, you get God, you know, making land and sea and um, creatures in the uh, sea and creatures. And you're talking about like ex- extremes, um, but of course, the stuff in between isn't mentioned, like rivers and the shore uh and dusk and dawn and we don't say they're a result of the fall so and then he says male female you know we're talking extremes ends of a spectrum so mm-hmm. so why say that those who kind of fit in between the spectrum or somewhere on the spectrum would be kind of they're not mentioned that doesn't mean they're they're bad and um part of that argument is, is coming from a good you know coming from a good place and that god says life like embodiment human embodiment is is good and we want to affirm i, I totally affirm that um, I just want to raise a question about like what the text is 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 doing there, and I think there's something something that struck me is the way the creation narrative is set up is that um, the world is uh, formless and empty, um, and uh, the way that Genesis one kind of develops literarily is there's a there's a creative uh, God's creativity and creational diversity is good, but it's sort of subsumed underneath the banner of God bringing order. And order for a particular purpose. There's forming, there's filling, and God's ordering the world, kind of reversing the formless and empty. He's bringing form, um, fulfilling. Um, uh, he's he's forming life for the purpose of for a particular function of being fruitful. And so I think, particularly when it comes to, mm. I mean, yes, when it comes to understanding sex embodiments in creation. Um, God creates male and female. He forms male and female for the function of fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as, as you mentioned um, in the, uh, earlier on, there are only two categories that are the required that are the requirements for uh, physical fruitfulness: mm-hmm. um, male and female. Um, and I found thinking a little bit with um, uh, Thomas Aquinas has been helpful in terms of giving some language, some categories of. Um, uh, how form fits function and how a particular function kind of corresponds with form. And I think this is, again, another reason why it's wonderful having not just Genesis 1, but Genesis 2. I, I don't want to kind of reduce a male-female fruitfulness just to procreation. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of Genesis 2 is that our, the, the, the fruitfulness in the garden overflows to a, a, a social, mm-hmm. existential, spiritual fruitfulness. So fruitfulness is the big thing. Mm-hmm. But a, a really key category when it comes to thinking about sex embodiments mm-hmm. is... Um, uh, the function of uh, physical procreative fruitfulness mm-hmm. um, and how we put together what's going on in, in, in creation 
and how that links up with new creation and how the story unfolds mm-hmm. um, is, is, is really key. Because sometimes the debate can just hinge around, oh, let's try and get back to the Garden of Eden, what's going on there? But, but actually, uh, we're not there. And, and uh, we can't get back to the Garden. Mm-hmm. And actually, God's doing something bigger and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how the conversation, how the trajectory moves on yeah. uh, from uh, creation to yeah. new creation um, uh, opens up more conversations, um, but also more of an opportunity to see what God's doing with our sex embodiments yeah. uh, to bring yeah. glory. Yeah, I hope I hope the listeners caught your, which are the argument you're summarizing because it, it it comes up quite a bit now. I feel like when I first came across it, I think I was reading Megan DeFranz's book. Um, that might have been the first time I encountered. No, it might have been before that, and that was probably four or five years ago. And since then, I, I it's come up quite a bit whenever I speak on even on gender sexuality. This question usually comes up. You know, what, you know, Genesis one. Sure, you have you know night and day, but it doesn't mention dusk and dawn or <laughs> land and sea. Doesn't mention marshes and quicksand and you know these hybrids. So when it says male and female, those are two ends of the spectrum. But I, I, I mean, I've wrestled with that. At first glance, it, it does seem like wow, yeah, I, I haven't thought about that. But is it fair to say that like throughout Scripture, we see amphibians and marshes and <laughs> sand and shores and dusk and dawn. But whenever humanity's mentioned, male and female are still the only two categories. Whenever animals like mammals are mentioned, male and female, they're only two sex categories, even within scripture. So, so to say that, I don't know, like it, it is an interesting argument at first glance, but it just, I don't, I just, just because light and day, evening and morning are two broad categories that we can't, say therefore male and female must be we have to explore male and female on its own and say are these two ends of a wide spectrum of sex embodiment and you just don't get that the the eunuch doesn't work i mean yeah i mean that's that's a a really good um really good theological instinct of saying here's a text how does this text fit in its um canonical context Uh, that's that's so it's a brilliant idea i mean it it, it is actually this hybrid argument is an increasingly popular argument. Yeah. I guess part of it is like, what's the strength of the claim? Is it a sort of a weak analogy kind of claim? Hey, could be, it's a sort of speculation. Um, some people may employ it that way. It's often, I find, employed in a sort of, um, an, as a knockdown argument. Um, or the traditional way of reading creation is just naive. But, but, but as you say, the way sort of male and female that, that little phrase is used um it, not only is it kind of um well it, it, it's actually particularly in genesis throughout genesis it's it's always coupled with the kind of a function of yeah. procreation um whether human or animal i mean there are also like there are philosophical problems that raise all sorts of um further problems down the line when it comes to thinking about like soteriology and who jesus comes to save i mean the shawl um the sure arguments for, 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 the, for the argument to work, male, female, it requires like a, a, a spectrum where um, there's uh, there's continuity of, of, of um, well, metaphysical continuity, like what the thing it what what the thing is, as in this case, like human. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, sea and land, are just, I mean, they're different. They are they're just fundamentally different. Um, uh, which means it doesn't quite work there of having, you know, are you then saying the shore is then, is that then an, another, like an even more different thing? Mm-hmm. And then if you try and map on some kind of non-human uh, non creation onto human creation, 
and one's male and one's female, well, are you then saying they're kind of, they're just fundamentally different? And they're saying kind of intersex, again, are then just like fundamentally different. And then you get a problem because Jesus became a man. Um, he, he, he's, he's met, so does, Jesus does a male, does a male Messiah only save males. You see, you get problems all the way down the line. So as an argument, not only is it kind of the hybrid argument, not only have like literary, like inner Bible problems, um, but yeah. philosophically it's got, and there are, there are other philosophical problems. I would find it insulting too, if we have to assume that there's an embodied existence that's neither male and female. And I do, I mean, I, I people kind of roll their eyes when I say this, but Genesis 1 does say male and female. It doesn't say male or female. So I, I, I don't know. Even the language <laughs> does allow for people who might be a, a blend of both for, for whatever reason. Um, but I'd, I'd be a little insulted if, if we have to assume that there's all these existences between male and female, and yet they're never mentioned in Scripture. You, you know, like, well, where are they? So, like, God doesn't even care enough to even mention some third or fourth or fifth sex that exists in between male and female. Um, I, Julie, I'm going to ask you two honest questions. Okay. Um, and, and I <laughs> put you on the spot. I, um, and I don't even know if you would be able to answer this one, honestly, but I, how does it, how do you feel hearing me and Sam talk about theology and science and arguments? And, is this, does it feel de- dehumanizing? That's my first question. It, and it, I guess there's three questions. One is this a problem for you? Number two, is there a better way we can go about it? Number three, if it's not us two, is there, have you heard other people talk about this as some abstract thing in a way that just feels like, uh, can you not do that? (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't find it dehumanizing because I think it's all very important and crucial. Mm -hmm. I think, um, hearing intersex stories and thinking about it deeply can really point people to Christ Mm -hmm. and to, um, and to the attributes of God. He said in Genesis, it is good. His creation is good. And he gave us authority over the animals and his creation. And I feel like we are different. So to compare myself to a marsh versus swamp or something, no, I'm different. I have a soul. My purpose (laughs) is, is different. And um, so my function within creation is different. And I know that if God were to create me the way he did without the ability to have children, carry children, without the ability to function hormonally, and I would think that's just weird to me. Like that just, that, I, I don't want people to glorify my mm. body or use my body in a way that makes it seem like my body is something to be admired or um, fully functioning or even good because it's not good. Mm. My body is fallen. It's very obvious that my body is fallen. Well, and we all, I mean, that's not all of us. Yes, there's so many affected disorders. by the fall on multiple levels. Yeah. It's touched every aspect. Not that everything yeah. about us is 100% fallen in the same way, but I mean, every aspect of human existence is affected by the fall on some level, right? I mean, not to get all reformed. Yeah. We're all somewhat reformed, I think. So, I mean, you live in Michigan, so you can't, you have to be reformed, I think. 
<laughs> but I mean, even even a Wesleyan has a view of the fall, right? I mean, nothing I'm saying is like really unique to the Reformed tradition. We just tend to emphasize it maybe a little more, pro- probably to a fault. Um, um, I'm I'm curious, Julie. So when you see the acronym LGBTQIA, the I standing for intersex, do you does that resonate with you? Do you feel like that? Ident- that series of identities like that 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 you fit within that or, or not really um personally just speaking for myself not the community as a whole i do not identify with any of those okay um, identities i'm married to a man and i present as female um i can function i know you're probably all curious i do function normal sexually as a female um so i just feel like I don't identify with any of those. Um, but would I, yeah? I, would you? Would some intersex? Yeah. Many intersex A lot people. Of yeah. Do function okay. um, or identify as LGBTQ? Okay. Or they go through, especially the T transgender. I think is a lot as some of them have identity issues and have struggles knowing which gender they really are, which way to present in society can be very difficult for intersex people. Okay. Okay. What about there, there was, um, there's an intersex, I think she would call herself an activist in the UK. Um, who she, she, she's been really vocal about, not being used as an argument in the trans conversation. Cause, cause that's, that, that's real. I mean, in, in my, in the work that I've done, like my primary focus was asking the question, what relationship does intersex have within mm-hmm. some theological or philosophical arguments for certain trans I- identities? Uh, and I know I'm keeping that deliberately broad because there's lots of different facets of that, but uh, a primary way of thinking that I've come across is people say, you know, I, I call it kind of the since intersex, therefore transgender identities, Me- meaning like somebody, somebody's gender identity can o- overrule in a sense, their biological sex. And, and, and a main argument really is like, because we know about intersex, like intersex kind of is used as an argument for something in the, in the trans conversation. Um, but this inner, I'm trying to think of her name again. I'm obviously my mind's, <laughs> not working this morning <laughs> maybe because it's this morning and it, my mind tends to wake up around two in the afternoon but um uh i, I quote her in my book and and she she's kind of really offended at that <laughs> argument well i think our um, issues are completely different i feel like my issues are are physical and i feel like many transgender friends their issues are more of an, an identity issue um, I would struggle to say a heart issue or a, um, a psychological issue, not in like a mental illness way, but in in just the, their issues are not physical. They have okay. to put themselves through physical issues to become the gender they want to be. Okay. Um, but I feel like, yeah, they're completely different issues physically. Okay. Okay. Sam, yeah. Well, well the, the, and the resistance doesn't just come from um, the intersex community. There are others whose identities are being collapsed into that initialism, um, who, who resist 
the conflating. Um, you know, you've got sexual orientations within there. You've got um, gender incongruence in there. You've got um, identity questioning. Uh, it, it's 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 certainly it's an easy move um, from the perspective of like rights advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and again, it just sort of comes back to something um, Julie said and, and, and written of. I, I, I think that uh, the uh, people with intersex embodiment present the church with a wonderful opportunity to um, uh, grow, like grow in thinking how do we love each how do we love each other well, mm-hmm. and, and particularly where where you've got a, um, where there are uh, bodies that are not like clearly observably ordered towards the opposite sex, mm-hmm. which actually kind of reflects something that, how, that the scriptures speak of how we're ordered to God mm-hmm. and how we're traveling towards God. Mm-hmm. And so kind of elevating or, or, or giving um, concrete facing you know, people like um, Julie like an, an opportunity to be able to say, yeah, we're not just kind of marriage is great, but actually we're made for something greater. Mm. We're made for marriage with our saviour. Uh, and, so, and so kind of being ordered, um, ordered to God and, and, and the church, we, we need, like we need to... Um, people with intersex embodiment to help us look beyond kind of the opposite sex and like being so focused in on um, mm-hmm. uh, certain questions of sexuality mm-hmm. and be rightly ordered to the new creation. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's great. Uh, Cl- Claire Graham. Know. Claire Graham is the one I was thinking of. I just looked up her, mm. her name. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's yeah. Um, but we, yeah. Julie. Well, I was going to say too, that we are called to deny our flesh. And that has to look, um, I think, different for LGBTQI people and not put my stake, my earthly claim in my flesh because it's not good. And I think the word hope comes to mind all the time of just having hope in Christ and in, in being redeemed in my salvation and, and looking there rather than what I wish I had or didn't have physically or just being content with yeah. how God made me. As you've talked to other uh, intersex people, Julie, um, do you come across other, like quite a few Christians? I mean, is this, or are most people you talk to outside the church? And my, I guess my main question is how do Christian intersex people feel when they're at church? They feel othered, marginalized, or is it not probably a wide range of experiences? I assume I feel like a lot of us aren't very public with our stories. Mm. So to be marginalized within the church would mean that we make kind of a platform out of our issues, um, which I don't find many of us doing a mm. whole lot. We might write books or blogs or articles about our mm. conditions, but it doesn't um, affect my daily church life. Right. Um okay. To a great extent, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- yeah, actually, it totally does. Um, I've never had anybody say, "Oh, you're intersex, then you shouldn't take <laughs> part in this aspect of church life. You're just too weird. Yeah. No, nobody's done anything like that." But, but you're saying so. A lot of people. Do you know a lot of people that, that have no clue about your condition? Yeah, I feel like I grew up in a smaller, insular West midwest community and my identity was formed and i didn't really want to shake 
the world up and, and didn't want to appear as weird. And there was so much I didn't know. So I just didn't really put it out there until all these theological issues came out. And I was, that's important right there. Those issues are important and need to be talked about. And they're using intersex issues to say that creation is not good or that there's so many genders and you can live any way you want to. I'm like, no, let's get back to scripture with this. And here's how I think my embodiment aligns with scripture. Yeah. So Sam, you, you started as a pastor, went to go do a PhD out of, you had pastoral motivations, right. Uh, And theological, obviously I don't see those two as different. Um, You're going back to the church uh, to do some form of pastoral ministry. What, what do you hope to bring back with you? Like what, what kind of pastoral ministry do you hope you're going to be doing on this side of your PhD that, um, that is going to be well served by doing a PhD in, in this topic? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I, um, yeah, I, the, the, thinking about what it means to be human. I mean, it, it's, it's endlessly mind boggling. Uh, David does it, doesn't he, in Psalm 8. What is that? And that you're mindful of it. And, and thinking about sex embodiment in particular is, is not only kind of particularly pastorally relevant at the moment, but theologically has given opportunities to think about the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the fall, um, the doctrine of redemption, uh, new creation. It's given opportunities to sort of dip, dip a toe right across um, in, in, in lots of different um, mm-hmm. uh, well, to think about lots of different things. Uh, what I'd love to do, go back, is is to help all all of us, male, female, intersex, however, however sexed, um, to find our, our our identity and understand our embodiment within the grand story of what God is uh, has done, is doing, and will do uh, in uh, in His Son. Um, and uh, I, I find that really really exciting um the scriptures are and and how the church has historically thought about them wonderfully rich and i think that enable will enable the church and there's so much and um, something touched on uh rights activism and, and, and questions of justice all important questions um, but i do think that the church has an opportunity to provide and this phrase like safe space is used is a very plastic term but a genuine community um, that understands the goodness of given given embodiments, but also kind of ordered um, to the one who who has made us. Again, sort of come back to we we know what we are when we know whose we are and who's made us and gives us our identity and where we fit within his story. Um, and so I'd love love to go back and and um, be part of cultivating uh, a church culture um, that tells tells the better story that is already there um in in scripture um and and, and to do that within the little church that's uh I'm, I'm called to serve and um uh hopefully that that'll be able to resource and give others um other christians confidence to be able to talk winsomely and boldly and uh attractively uh, about yeah. all that god is doing in jesus and, and where we fit yeah because I, yeah, I would imagine i mean like with any topic usually you, you can focus on something that is kind of you know this 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 one specific thing but that creates a lot of interesting unforeseen implications for other aspects of life i mean in in the work that i've done with 
LGBTQ Christians, like just sexual and gender minorities, you know, it's helped me open up my eyes to just lots of different people that have some kind of minority experience. And, and that's a lot of people, you know, even like right now, I've got this interest in just understanding disability. And, and um, my friend Lamar Hardwick said, you know, that's the largest minority population in the world. 20% of people have some kind of disability on some level. Like that's, I mean, what, over a billion people, you know, it's the largest minority population. Um, and like, wow. Yeah. Like that. But like, thinking through this kind of minority population and how the church can include and empower and be empowered by this population has helped me to understand other aspects. And I would imagine thinking through intersex has probably created those categories, but even, even going, you know, going back to the percentages, you know, 1.7, let's round up to two or we can round down to 1.5. That's not, that's not an insignificant number. Um, I mean, a church of, a thousand people, which is, you know, fairly small in America, <laughs> a house church in Texas, <laughs> that's 15 people, 2000 is 30 people. Um, and just p- people listening to this podcast that churches are that size are bigger, you know, and that, that's not a, there, there's several people in the congregation that might have some like questions that they feel like nobody can answer that they're wrestling with some fundamental aspects of, of what does this mean for my life? Who am I? How did God create me? Um, that, that, you know, I, I think pastors should at least, you know, be equipped on some level, which is why I think your work is important just for pastoring people with an intersex condition. Um, Julie, fi- let's, let's go to final kind of thoughts here. Can you just help us all? How can we go about this conversation well? Uh, I know it's, that's super broad you know, but, um, what would you, you have a free reign to talk to thousands of people. Like, what do you want people to leave this episode with? Uh, should they, you know, read more books, think through this more, how should they leave this podcast and, and what should they take away from this? Well, I guess my desire is that it will cause people to look at their lives through the gospel story through creation, fall, and redemption, and really have um, a strong view of whatever they're dealing with. It could be a physical ailment. It could be just miserable circumstances. It could be depression, anxiety. It could be anything. And seeing anything they're dealing with that doesn't seem natural or or right, and knowing that that God will fulfill His promises and God will. Uh, is working towards for our good mm-hmm. and that yeah. um, it's not here. We can't find that here on earth. Yeah, The answers yeah. aren't here on earth. Um, my physical cure is not here on earth. It's something to look forward to. So you live in hope and you live um, in praise to God for all that he can do here on earth through the unnatural things we go through. Mm. Good, good. Sam, mm-hmm. uh, closing thoughts. Camping out in 1 Corinthians 15 um, is, is, is wonderfully rich um, of what it thinks, what, how to think well about our bodies and, and, and our new creation bodies, um, of mm-hmm. how uh, God is both, will, will both restore and transform um, our bodies. Uh, death affects all of us. Our bodies are falling apart in all sorts of ways, not just our bodies, but our minds. We can't read ourselves rightly. Uh, but there's one who... Uh, who's, who's made us and knows us and loves us and is both 
we're one day closer to being restored to who we truly are and transformed um, into the image of the, the heavenly man. And, and so the way Paul finishes in 1 Corinthians 15 of um, uh, death being swallowed up, mm. um, of uh, having victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore calling us to, to um, dear brothers and sisters, to stand firm um, and let nothing move us and giving ourselves um, to the work of the law, giving ourselves to each other in, in, in love to create that church um, c- community, that space for um, uh, the other and the marginalised um, of how we kind of see what God is doing. So spending time with 1 Corinthians 15 and finding where we fit within that story, I, I, I found very rich uh, and uh, I would hope others do too. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, that... that. The hope of resurrection just seems to be such an all-consuming theme in the New Testament. And yet it's something that, at least for those of us in the West, you know, the more comfort we have in our lives, the, the less we cling to that hope. I find myself all the time, all the time, just forgetting that, really. Like, I, I mentally know it, but I don't orient my life around this, like, just passionate, eager anticipation of the life to come. But you just that undergirds so much in the new testament especially new testament ethics and and suffering and 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 everything so thanks for that reminder and thanks to both of you seriously for coming back on the show giving us another hour of your time the other hour is lost in the sands of my computer somewhere but um yeah thanks julie thanks sam for being on theology in the rock